0: Welcome to the TurfNet Renovation Report brought to you by Golf Preservation's The Andersons and Capillary Bunkers. I'm Anthony Piappi, your host. Joining me is David Otis of David Otis Consulting, which he founded in 2019 based in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dave consults with golf facilities throughout the Northeast and is partnering with the Metropolitan Golf Association to support MJ Golf facilities throughout the area. Prior to that, he served as director of the USGA Green Section's Northeast Each Region for 30 years, providing golf course management consulting services to facilities in 28 states and Canada. He made over 3,500 consulting visits and provided agronomic support of 25 USGA national championships and competitions. Welcome to the show, Dave. Anthony, thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, Dave, you had quite the career with the USGA. You went out on your own in 2019. You do this consulting. Talk about your role when you get to a club with that's looking to do a restoration or a renovation. It's an interesting
1: question because that role, I think, has changed quite a bit over the years. When I first started with the USGA in the late 80s and early 90s, there wasn't quite the appreciation for older architecture that there is today and so when i talked to courses back then about possible renovation projects frankly i often encourage them to research their own facility to make sure they understood what they had because frankly most of them probably didn't at that time and so You know, the 80s is, you know, late 80s is when I think we started to figure out that some old architecture was really awesome and worth preserving. And it's far better appreciated today than it was back then. Um, And then over the years, it's changed from, oh, my gosh, you don't know what you have to, hey, let's see what makes sense based on your desires and what the original design is and what the heritage of the course is.
0: Let's break it out to restoration and renovation. You get to a restoration-type course. What's the first thing that, you're, that they're asking of you? What's your role for them?
1: My role is helping them make sure that the project is appropriate and realistic. You know, courses built in the 20s and 30s were built without golf carts in mind. They were built probably for rounds of, you know, three to 5000 or so maybe annually. And now we have golf carts and we have far more golf being played. So restoring a course to the exact original design may not work because of traffic. You know, they likely or possibly had cross bunkers, which right. makes for a very difficult traffic flow when you're talking about electric golf carts. And, you know, some of the cross bunkers go- aren't in play for golfers now or not for the stronger players. Uh, like they might have been. So now it's, you know, do you really want to restore to the original design? Does that make sense? And if you do, does it work? And it does happen on occasion, but I would say far more courses sort of restore to the original design intent with the original features or types of features, but placement is often jockeyed around to fit how the game now is played and how it's changed over the years.
0: Right. So you're on site or you're with these facilities before they've hired an architect? Uh, frequently, yes, uh, but not always. Okay. And then do you get in the role of, of helping them hire an architect? Not per se. Uh, but the the one thing I have always encouraged, and I still today
1: is, number one, do research on your course so you can find out as much about it as you can before the architects get there. And that might start with looking in the attic. Right. I don't know how many courses I've talked to that actually had original uh, design information, plans, you name it, stuck up in a closet in the attic. Right. And uh, when they found them, they realized, oh my gosh, this is not what we thought we had. Right, um, But lots of people now are very good at researching The history, of course, is the design changes and, you know, what architect worked on them at various times, you know, during their history. So I think it's a good idea to do your own research. But then as you bring in architects, my best advice is follow them around with a a tape recorder and listen to what they say. If you bring in two or three or four different architects, they're all going to see and say some of the same things. But most will also say and see different things, and so when you when you're when a club's hiring an architect, yes, you have to have a, a competent individual, but it's also a bit of a marriage and the personality of one might fit better with a course, you know, personality committee members and, and so on and so forth than others. Uh, but then identifying with what they're saying and seeing in your facility is kind of the ultimate. ultimate goal making sure that it's what you're looking for
0: we've all seen this where these the the marriage doesn't work with the it turns out that the architect doesn't fit with the members or the members you know thought they wanted something and then it turns out when the architect presents that to them that that's not what they wanted and to me that's always the strangest one where they hire an architect they've you know interviewed 10 people they hire an architect (laughs) they get on the same page we think about what the you know that the course wants The architect produces a master plan, they accept the master plan, and I'm thinking of one specific, and then as soon as they talk about construction, they start changing the master plan. I'm always fascinated or just mystified when that happens, that a two-year process goes out the window in a matter of a week, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that that has happened. I I think in some cases, um,
1: you know, committees, memberships are hearing what they want to hear, but maybe not listening carefully enough to the architect. I I know of a a situation or two where they asked for a restoration, they got a restoration, and then they didn't like it. Well, that's because they didn't really understand what the original design was. Right, right. And so that may have been a hearing issue or some sort of communication issue. Um, But I also have seen um, courses promised a restoration and not really gotten it. And that's not so common now, but that was not uncommon, you know, twenty five, thirty five years ago. So uh it it it's a trusting relationship, that's for sure, between an architect and a club. And to be fair, that you always find things during construction that you didn't um envision. And so there will always be some field adjustments.
0: Oh, absolutely. Right. So, uh, right it's It's fascinating too, like um that that this work is on the plans that people can look at the plans and then it's it's as if they don't understand what it was going to look like on the ground, even though that it was drawn on this you know this plan, and it kind of catches them by surprise, and you're like, well, it's right there, you know the one that always gets me uh because
1: one of the abilities that architects have that I think is so fascinating they can look at topography lines on a map and envision what that's going to look like when it's built. And I look at those lines, and I can read them and say, wow, that's a pretty good elevation change, but I don't have that ability to, you know, look at that plan and transfer it into what it's going to look like. So, And and I'm sure most golfers are going to be in that same
0: boat. So, Right. And and is your role also with these courses in helping select turf varieties? Yeah, and that's really –
1: it's not just the turf species, uh, it's also the cultivar. So um, I frequently talk to folks about, you know, if you're going to rebuild one or two or five or six greens, maybe you want to think about rebuilding them all so that you adopt the best technology currently available. Right. And have consistency from surface to surface, not in just how they look and how they play, but how they're maintained. Right. I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges you can give superintendents, and I don't think people talked enough about this years ago, or at least people didn't hear enough about it when we talked, understand it when we talked about it. But one of the biggest challenges is for a superintendent to manage two or three or four different types of greens on one property. Right. I mean, even if they're all built the same, they all react a little bit differently. But when they have very different you know, maybe grasses and certainly different methods of construction. Uh, that just makes it so much harder to produce good playability and consistent playability, you know, from day to day and to the extent possible from green to green. So, uh, yeah, uh, making sure that you're choosing bent if it's the appropriate species for your greens. And frankly, often it is not. So, yeah, uh, I will... Frequently recommend not converting to bent if you're rebuilding greens if it doesn't have a strong likelihood of working well in your situation. How do
0: you, how, with with these varieties coming out? at seemingly every year, and the varieties getting better and better. How how do you how do you keep up with with the industry of, of what of these new grass varieties? <laughs> uh, it um, with bent grass. That's
1: my main focus. Um, but keeping up with all the, uh, cultivar improvements, enhancements in all of the different species, that's, that's really a lot of work and it's, uh, right. Um, I, I don't take the time to do that. Um, but with bent grass, because it's such a, it's the species we're most likely to use in our most important to play areas. That's the one I focus on. And so how I do it is, um, watching, how, it, how different cultivars perform in the field on, on golf courses. But I really spend a lot of time with the folks at Rutgers and looking at the NTEP data. Uh, Rutgers is kind of in my backyard, and they uh, have been breeding bentgrass for years and years. So I keep a close eye on how the different cultivars are performing over there. And they they do a really good job of maintaining their plots, putting a lot of stress on them. So uh, they tend to force out differences. If you mow them high and don't mow them often and don't put stress on them, then you don't really see the separation in their performance.
0: Right. And
1: uh, so they really do a good job of stressing them out. So if they do well there, there's a strong likelihood they're going to do well on courses. You
0: know, How far south is your consulting business taking you? Um, I'm mostly uh, Pennsylvania, uh,
1: New Jersey, New York um, Connecticut and, uh, New England. Um, when I was with the USGA, gosh, I was, in you know, Ohio and, uh, West Virginia and Virginia and Maryland, Delaware. Uh, but I'm, trying to stay a little closer to home these days
0: <laughs> understandably uh we talked about restorations tell me about the your role when you go into a golf course that's going to go a full-scale renovation they may have had a mediocre design uh they want to change the golf course understandably they want it to be more strategic more fun more interesting where you're going in and you're going to know that greens are going to be blown up and keys and maybe you know your fairways are going to be regressed and everything. What's that must be a a pretty intense role for you to get involved in a project like that. It's big, it's daunting, but it's a lot of fun and it's a huge opportunity
1: to, as you put it, take a mediocre course and take it to a whole nother level that maybe people, you know, really never envisioned. So some of the things that I already mentioned, you know, whether it's a restoration or a whole new design, it's, is this design going to work for you? So do you have 10,000 rounds being played a year? Well, that's one set of um, traffic flow parameters that will be required. If you're going to have 25 or 30, um, you know, that's a whole different set of parameters for traffic flow. And those same two things are going to influence what grasses we recommend. And, you know, um, in addition to traffic flow, it's, T-size, you know, building, there's a rule of thumb that's been in existence for decades. And if you follow the rule of thumb for T-size, you know, you'll have pretty decent T's taking into consideration variability based on grass growing environments. So when a club is doing a renovation or a whole new design, one of the things I focus on is, you know, will it work agronomically so you know, the grass varieties, tea size, landing size and fairways, but then the grass growing environments. Because the grass growing environment you put turf in has a bigger impact on its performance than any other factor, period, dot. Um, a perfectly built green or tea in a poor growing environment isn't going to work well. Um, it'll, it'll underperform and people won't be happy with it. So um, not you can't always... Fix the growing environments to the extent you may desire. For instance, if all the trees are yours and you can remove them to maximize light penetration, airflow, so be it. But what if they're not on your property? Well, if that's the case, then you may 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 need to make design changes to allow a turf, a putting green, to perform in a substandard growing environment. Maybe making it bigger. Maybe making traffic flow even better um changing the orientation a bit maybe to the south or southeast or southwest as opposed to um a little further north because uh southern oriented green warms up and and uh grows more rapidly and grows longer in the fall so
0: lots of things like that um, and what what is this rule of thumb on teas? tell me what that is well, it's it's pretty simple, but it's uh, you need a hundred
1: square feet of usable teeing area. Now, that's not surface area. Yep. you give up the back two club lengths and at least a club length in in width, and you know a club length or half a club length in front. Yep. So, a hundred square feet of usable teeing area per thousand rounds of golf played annually on par fours and fives. Now, you double that number for par threes always the first tee and the 10th tee also, if it's uh returning nines um, yep. and any short fours or fives where people might be hitting, you know, hybrids or irons or what have you um, you might want to consider those uh, par threes for the, for the sake of this. And the other critical thing that's not really in the rule of thumb is you have to figure out where most of your play is going to uh, be played from. So, right. If you make your forward tee, you know, 5,000 square feet and you need six and you split the remaining 1,000 square feet of usable area on the heavily played
0: tees, it's not going to work very well. And we talked about growing environments. Have you seen a shift in membership understanding of why trees are removed? Absolutely. Um, I, <laughs> I think the
1: first 15 years or more that I was with the USGA, it was an act of Congress. It was pulling teeth to get courses to take out trees. And usually, if they did, it would be, you know, half a dozen or maybe 10 a year. And at some point in the early 90s, it dawned on me that at the rate most courses were taking out trees, um, we'd, we'd all be dead, long gone. Before they <laughs> fix their problems. Right. Um, and so I actually started encouraging courses in 90, 1991, two, 3, to do evaluations. You know, literally start on the first hole and go to 18 and look at every single tree on the property and give it a, a decision, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You know, is it a good tree? Is it worth protecting? Is it a bad tree that has no potential? Is it one that's causing? traffic flow or agronomic problems or what have you and courses were slow to adopt that approach but you know since the 90s many many courses have done that and they've solved a heck of a lot of problems you know in in the way during during the process
0: do you think people the average golfer now understands or understands better than or the higher percentage understand that that tree's A lot of trees lead lead to turf problems and to bad turf. That we're not just taking down trees for the sake of taking down trees, but actually for turf quality. Yeah, I I do, and there still are lots of people,
1: frankly me included, many times uh, where we don't want to take out trees, but we just have to. Right. And when I am evaluating trees, it's always it's a ton of criteria to consider. You know, is is it actually a good tree? And I think. A good analogy is uh, you know, trees are a bit like real estate. If you buy a beautiful home in a bad neighborhood, it's not worth very much. Right. Um, so a beautiful tree that's killing your green is not worth very much. Right. So I think that analogy helps people understand. The, the other analogy I stumbled on a few years ago was that turfgrass leaf blades are like uh, solar panels. And nobody would ever put them on the north side of your house. And no one <laughs> right. would ever put them in the woods. Right. <laughs> and, and that actually, I think, <laughs> resonates with people. They go, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I think people are accepting of tree work now, not in every case. And, you know, sometimes you find a tree that's so valuable because of the history of it or more likely the form, the species, the structure that you say, well... It's hurting the green, but we can live with it for now and we won't take it out.
0: So, all right, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced, offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit Andersons PlantNutrient.com slash turf. From fairway and greens drainage to full scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing that professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606-499-2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts,
1: soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms,
0: but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a 3-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. All right, we're back on the Turf Net Renovation Report with Dave Otis of Dave Otis Consulting. Dave, I want to um, step back to your, your role with the USGA. Let's talk about agronomic support for a USGA National Championship. What goes into that? That's a that's a big subject and a fun one, but um, <laughs> re- okay.
1: really the goal is always no surprises, um, no surprises for the superintendent and no surprises for the USGA. So um, one of the fun projects I tackled when I was with the USGA is developing uh, a lengthy set of documents on. Uh, basically, BMPs for championship preparation. And they ranged from, you know, the boys and girls junior championships all the way up to the U.S. Open. And as, as you would expect, there was a huge difference in the amount of time and prep that went into preparing courses for the the wide range of championships that the USJ held. But, um, and, and basically, this document was a, a laundry list of all the mistakes that I'd seen made and had made some myself over the years. So it was kind of a set of BMPs to avoid these problems that we've experienced in the past. Um, You know, it started with simple things like mowing order. If We have a televised event and uh, we we have to know what order we're going to mow things so that we stay ahead of the uh, core setup teams and obviously well ahead of play and maybe keep sound away from, you know, golfers teeing off on the first or first few holes, or right. TV cameras, or that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it was very involved and, and very detailed. And I know Darren Bavard took it over after I developed the first draft and has refined it. And I would think they're probably still, you know, working on it, refining it today because you learn something every year with championships things can happen that you just didn't envision so
0: so i know you didn't weren't involved in the project but but um the us open was at the country club in brookline this year it's a course that's always in great condition um they have the money to do with what they what needs to be done how early does the usga get involved in what's going on with course maintenance leading up to the tournament well, for an open, it's, you know, usually five to maybe even seven years, depending on,
1: um, the nature of the championship, uh, in terms of how many changes might need to be made. Um, Marion was a very difficult open, uh, to work out because it had such a small footprint and there were so many entities that had to come in, right. uh, together to pool resources and make it all work. And, um, so I, I would think at the country club, probably five to seven years. And it was, it's such a great facility, so old, so historic. It was really fun to see a wonderful championship um, come to fruition there. It's, uh, the folks at Brookline are just the best. And uh, it was great to see that they got a great champion and a really dramatic championship.
0: And it looked fantastic on television, as everybody commented. I mean, it would look just super. Yeah. So, so in a course like that, how much, how much decision does, or or, or does the USJ, or did you have and say things like width of landing areas and height of cuts on, on any part, whether it be fairways or rough or collars or tees?
1: That was mostly the championship staff with periodic input from the green section agronomists based on um, agronomic needs um, and, and whatnot. And, practical matters like, you know, do we have a mower to do this? Do we have the people to do this? Not so much at the open because resources are, um, very available for, uh, U S open championships. Um, but, so that would be more of a, uh, USGA championship staff setting up the course, the way they'd like it to play. Um, and
0: with, with agronomic considerations,
1: making sure that, um, what we, what they want to do is possible.
0: And so then your role would be what? When you, when you five to seven years out, what are you doing with, d- when dealing with the superintendent?
1: Well, that's all about turf health, um, playability, uh, and, and the issues that we would discuss would range from fertility, pest control, drainage, drainage concerns. Um, you know, soil organic matter is the, is the cultivation program in place on green on greens adequate uh does it need to be adjusted with the championship in mind do the greens drain adequately are there areas of greens that don't drain adequately um on old courses uh that could involve installing internal drainage systems although if a, an open is coming uh to a course they might have more than likely have already done that or perhaps have uh you know new high sand greens um So addressing agronomic concerns that could cause problems before or during the championship. You know, Beth Page, I was uh, in charge of the agronomic prep for that championship, and the 18th hole uh, had me really nervous because it's the lowest point on a, whatever it is, 1,500-acre property, and it had a history of poor drainage. And so uh, we did all kinds of things to make sure um, we could get water out of there. Uh, I actually had requested we have uh, fire engine pumper trucks, one or two there, because I had seen that used uh, 40 years ago in a LPGA event out west when I worked uh, in California. Uh, And we didn't get fire trucks at Bethpage, but we did have several really large uh, pumps, which were running 24-7 thankfully, during the championship. So Wow. Yeah. seeing Envisioning things that anything that can go wrong kind of will go wrong sometimes, and you want to envision all of those things and put a program in place so that they won't.
0: I volunteered for the U.S. Women's Open at Newport, and if you remember that one, that was that week of just awful rain leading into the tournament, and they had all kinds of flooding, and that's funny you said that because there were fire trucks there that were pumping out streams to get the flow of water off the property into the flo- streams that were flooding. It was just, it was the worst case scenario. I remember that event.
1: I wasn't there and I didn't know about the fire trucks, but th- yeah, that's a, a great story. But, you know, if you make the prep, uh, the plans to have the trucks available or have extra uh, pumps available, you, you almost never need them. <laughs> uh, but
0: if you don't, don't have them available, that's when, oh my gosh,
1: you you will need
0: them. Did you ever deal with, for a, for a big championship, like a like a U.S. Open or an AM or a Women's Open or a Women's AM, where you got pushback from the course, from the host facility? Um, there were a
1: couple of occasions um, where um, there was pushback. But, you know, that's when the USJ Championship staff would step in and, and uh, have a meeting and get everybody back on the same page. So it really wasn't very it wasn't a common problem. Okay. Do you, do you miss it? Um, no, (laughs) (laughs) um, I, I had the greatest run with the USGA. It was an unbelievable honor to work for the USGA for 32 years. Um, but the championship work especially was so grueling. Um, yeah, I, I used to think that even the easy championships were hard and the hard ones were, uh, oh my gosh, Uh, I thought they took years off my life. So, uh, (laughs) I was not unhappy to not have to do one again. Uh, uh, I, you know, I missed the relationships that I had with, uh, many of the courses, but fortunately I've been able to keep consulting on my own and with the MGA. And so I've maintained a lot of those great relationships Right, and, uh, and, and I'm traveling
0: at a, at a healthier pace now, which is, uh, that was the goal when I stepped away from the USGA. Right. To not be on the road more days of the year than you weren't. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It, it, it was a, a really a privilege
1: to work for the USGA, but the, the travel schedule, especially for the first 20, 25 years was really insane. And as I look back, I wonder how I did it, it, it in some cases, um, it, but it wasn't healthy, and uh,
0: uh, but it was still worth it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm glad you're still in the business. I'm glad you're enjoying your new role, too. It's been an adjustment, and uh, I will <laughs> I will say I
1: appreciate more now what the many wonderful admins that I had uh, at the USJ over the years did for me, uh, because I have to do a lot of that now myself, and I'm not very good at it, at certain things, uh, but it, it's... I, I'm definitely enjoying myself, and uh, um, it's, it's been a really good transition, and I've been thrilled to work with the MGA
0: because they've been such a great supporter and uh, a wonderful organization to work with. Well, I appreciate you coming on the, uh, to talk to me today. This has been great. Anthony, it's really been fun. I'm glad we got a chance to do this. That concludes today's episode with my guest Dave Otis of Dave Otis Consulting. You have been listening to The Renovation Report on TurfNet Radio.